All right, so we're getting into the deep end of the pool tonight. Um, we'll get back to Luke real soon. Mike, what are you delivering next Sunday night? You're in Hebrews, right? Yeah, Hebrews chapter 4, chapter 5. Then Elder Nate, you're preaching at the 1045 service next Sunday morning. Yes, sir. And you are delivering a message on what? Samson. On Samson. Very good. So I'm going to preach a message next Sunday morning out of John 4 at 830. Then Nate is preaching at 1045. And then Mike is teaching Sunday night at 6 o'clock. And then the following Sunday, we'll, we'll probably try to wrap up this series on covenants. And um, you can see the title tonight is A Middle Ground Between Dispensationalism and Covenant Theology. And there's so many texts that I could have went to just kind of arbitrarily grabbed one just to kind of get us started in having this conversation. So turning your Bibles to Genesis 15, verse 18. Dr. Boyd, I put that label up there for you. Do you remember when you got your first can of tomato soup with that kind of a label? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, John? I said right before he Um... All right, let's talk about labels. Uh, what are the pros and what are the cons of labels? What are the pros and what are the cons of labels? Why do we care about labels? What are the pros? All right, Blake, give us something. Yeah, labels can help you identify something. Like, how many of you are thankful that when you go to the soup aisle that there are labels on the can? I mean, I really feel like that is a good idea to have labels on the can. You know, imagine looking for tomato soup and there are no labels. You know what a uh, mess that might be. All right, what are the struggles with labels? What are the struggles with labels? Sean. Can be really rigid and you can believe that they believe everything that goes with that label. Yeah, so they can be really rigid and you might associate someone with everyone that that. What else? Come on, what are the Kathy? Misleading. Misleading. All right, what else? Issues with labels. Divisive. Yeah, yeah, labels can be very divisive. Right. What else? Misleading. Misleading. Yep. Hard Adam. What? Hard to read. Hard to read. <laughs> I'm not sure that was the most helpful comment. We're looking for edifying things from this point forward for the rest of the night. All right. Deborah. One more time, Deborah. Sometimes they leave information out. Right. All right, Bruce. Sometimes you cannot change the label that's placed, change the label that's placed on you. All right. So obviously we're not talking for our visitors. We're not talking about Campbell's Soup. We don't care about Campbell's Soup. We're getting into some labels tonight. And um, so what do we want to say on the outset? We want to say that um, there are no circumstances we ever be ill towards each other with regard to labels. I mean, love is our primary interaction. Charity is extended. We, we, we don't allow ourselves to be divisive over labels. And it's so easy to do. I remember in the late 80s, the early 90s, I thought that Calvinists were heretics. Do you know what I'm talking about, sister? I didn't think they preached the gospel. 
I didn't know that they were, they were even saved. It, it had such a negative connotation. It was unbelievable. Then in 1995, I met a Calvinist at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. His name was Forrest Keener. He was one of the most dedicated preachers, theologically sound gentlemen I've ever met. And I was in an absolute market. I was in a quandary because I had all these preconceived ideas that were built into me concerning the label. And now I'm confronted with living reality of someone who loves Jesus more than me. Knows the gospel inside and out, preaches the gospel, loves the word of God. And now what do I do with all these preconceived ideas? And I've got to tell you, for that period of four months in, in Oklahoma, Marcus Bell, it was one after another, just knocked down after knocked down after. It was one of the highest, Michael was one of the highest peaks of spiritual growth for me in a very long time. Having to deal with that. Tonight, we're going to deal with some labels, and we're going to try to get some better understanding of these ideas. I left you last week with this illustration, and I want to make sure that everyone gets the illustration. So if you have your Bibles, I trust you're in Genesis chapter number 15. If you look with me on verse number 18. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram. Not even Abraham yet, he's still Abram. He's not become the father of a multitude of nations yet. He doesn't have his new name. That's not till chapter 17. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, this is the second time that he's talked to him about land because you know your Bibles and you know in chapter number 12, in verse number one, that Yahweh said to Abram, go from a country and to your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then this is reiterated all over again in this incredible chapter. You should have right now in your Bible underlined verse number six. And if you don't have it underlined, go ahead and underline it right now. This is our definitive introduction to the idea that men and women can be declared righteous through faith and faith alone. This very verse is the foundation of the Reformation. This verse and similar verses is why Martin Luther left the Roman Catholic Church. He believed Yahweh and Yahweh counted it to him, Abram, as Righteousness, justification, the imputation of a new standing with God such that God sees us as though there is no sin. And not only as though there is no sin, but he sees us as righteous. Then in verse number 18 in the same chapter, Yahweh reiterates the covenant commitment with Abraham that to his offspring he's going to give a piece of land, this land, and then there were two rivers, the river of Egypt and the great river of the Euphrates. And I think I have a map right here for you. So a northern boundary and a southern boundary. And then we get the land of the Canaanites, the Kezizites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. And church, 4,000 years later... This is still the issue. Yes. That's right. 
still the issue. That how we understand this land promise is what divides the church. And again, we, we want to be so careful when I use that word divide. I'm, I'm not saying it in a sense of believer and unbeliever. I'm not saying it in and out. I don't mean it that way. I mean theological disagreements as to how that should be understood. That's what we're talking about. So I suggested to you last week that this land promise right here was like a team of mules and then the tractor is what the sun gets. Do you remember that from last Sunday night? That's where we left off. We had a conversation in this room concerning whether the tractor is a legitimate fulfillment of the mules or does God first have to give the mules for a week or a month or a year and then after he gets the mules then he can give them a tractor. And I know it seems like such a ridiculous illustration. I got that. But the more literal you are in your insistence that the Word of God has to be understood literally and interpreted literally is what creates the demand that you've got to first give them mules. If you want to give them a tractor, that's fine. But you've got to have mules first for some period of time and then you can get them a tractor. And then there are others that say, no, no, you can just skip right over the mules and go to the tractor. And then, for those of you that like tractors, I found this one. <laughs> Jeremiah back there? I don't even see you. There you are. And you're probably not a John Deere guy. I probably, right? I, I saw it right. So, so you can't even appreciate it because you're not a John Deere guy. But Jeremiah, what do you think that tractor costs? That's what Dr. Boyd says, 250. Jeremiah, what do you think? <laughs> what? A half a million dollars is what Jeremiah says. Right. So what I'm doing here for just a moment is I want to write all over this new heaven and new earth. Got it? You understand what I'm doing here? You're anticipating, Dennis, that when you get to be 18 years old, Dad's given you a team of mules. And then you open this giant barn door, and that tractor is sitting in there. And you're, you're, you, it's inconceivable to you. Do you, do you it, that, that thing has bells, whistles, GPS guided. There's an app that runs it for you. I mean, and, and I'm not exaggerating. That, those things are so sophisticated, it's unbelievable. Somehow I want to suggest to you that there is a possibility that that's the case. But it might not be. And this is what we disagree with. This is the very issue that we disagree with. These covenants is why we have all these different titles. Let me show you a few. There's a dispensationalist. There's a progressive dispensationalist. There's a new covenant theologian, there's a progressive covenantalism, and there's covenant theology. And we're going to talk a little bit about all five, just so that you get some familiarity with the labels. But these covenants right here, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant, the understanding and the interpretation of these five covenants is created these divisions right here. Let's kind of walk this dog together for just a minute on this screen. So the first text I have for you on the very top is Genesis 15, 18. To your offspring, I will give this land. 
And then in Joshua chapter 21, so fast forward, you know that you went through Abraham, you went through Isaac, you went through Jacob, you went through Joseph, you went to the 400 years of Egypt, you've got Moses pulling them out of, the, of Egypt, the great um, uh, exodus, you, you went through the Red Sea, you did the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Moses dies, Joshua takes over, Joshua issues out the necessary instructions for the conquering land, and you read in chapter 21, verse 21, thus Yahweh gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. What could you conclude from that second verse? What could you conclude from that second verse? John? He what? Right. But everyone doesn't agree with that. But is, does that seem to suggest that? Nate, do you remember when you first saw that? I think you sent me an email or a text. I can't remember. So how would we describe this? How would we describe the difference here between Genesis 15, 18 and Joshua 21, 41? How would we communicate that? What? All right, Blake says a later fulfillment. So then I would describe this, Blake, as a localized... Fulfillment. And we have lots of prophecies like that. So this is not a new idea. But now look with me in Psalm 37, 11. Psalm 37, verse 11. And you can turn there or you can look on the screen. It doesn't matter to me. The psalmist says that the meek shall inherit the land. The land. You see it? The meek shall inherit the land. Then Jesus quotes that verse. Jesus quotes Matthew 5, 5 and says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Isn't that interesting? Don't miss this. What are we doing tonight? We are doing word-for-word, detailed analysis of Scripture verses. And I'm showing you that Jesus has no problems mirroring up this text and instead of saying land he says the whole earth they inherit the earth now who is the meek in this verse who are the meek in this verse is this a special category of people called the meek how should we understand because this is the sermon on the mount chapter five six and seven how should we understand the meek somebody give me an answer here what his people so why does it say his people why does it say meek All right, a characteristic of being a believer is that you are meek. And if you're not meek, what are you doing? You're trying to be good. That's right. That's right. You're, you're well aware that this is a characteristic of a believer. And I need to be there. So now let's turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 is an incredible chapter. It's one that you should read and reread this week at least once, maybe twice, if you're not familiar with it. The entire chapter is unbelievable. Look at it. Let's start with verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. 
What does the scripture say? All right, what scripture is he quoting there in verse 3? Genesis what? Genesis 15, verse number 6. If you don't have that written down, go ahead and write it down on the margin of your Bible right now so you don't forget this. So Abraham believed God and has counted him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing only for the Jews? I said circumcised, but you know that it's the Jews, right? Or also for the uncircumcised, referring to who, church? The Gentiles. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as the seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteous would be counted to them as well. And to make the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's pause for a minute and make sure we understand the argument that Paul is making here. There are two kinds of descendants of Abraham in this text. What are they? There are two descendants of Abraham in this text. What are they? They are what? What did you say, Marcus? Somebody give them to me. Let's go. What? Ethnic and spiritual. Okay, do you see that? If you don't, speak up so we can, because this is an important point. Do you see what, how that argument went there? If you don't, it's okay. This is why we have a small group conversation on Sunday night. Please. I want someone to ask a question if you don't get it so that we can see his argument. Before the law was ever given, we have these people that are receiving justification by faith. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal. I'm in verse 11, everyone. The righteous that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So if you today have the same kind of faith that Abraham had in the promises of God, then what does that make you tonight? What does that make you tonight? A spiritual son of Abraham. That's his argument. So then let's look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham, his offspring... That he would be the heir. What does it say, church? Of the world. The heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness 
of faith. So, let's take this, let's look up here in this chart right here on the screen together. Verse number 13, we have the world. In verse number 5 of Matthew, it's the earth. In verse number 11 of chapter 37, it's the land. In verse number 18 of chapter 15, it's the land. Here's what I'm arguing tonight, and everyone doesn't agree, and that's fine if you don't. That this land right here, in verse 18, are mules. And this right here, in, 30, in 11, are mules. And in verse 5, it's the tractor. It's the job of the That's right. Now, let's be clear. Everyone doesn't agree with that. Everyone doesn't agree with that. Those that don't agree with the most are the dispensationalists. And I want to make sure that everyone understands that's who I was. These are in my hand right here. Dr. Boyd, this was my first C.I. Schofield Bible, 1988. Yeah, I was told, go buy this Bible, and there was no options. This was the only Bible that you could buy. And this was the first Bible I owned. I have a note in here when I heard... Jack Hiles preached in 1988, um, and I wrote it down because I was told it was a big deal to get to hear him preach, and I should write this down in my date. This is my pre-tribulation rapture chart that I created myself on Word document back in 1990 so that I could get an understanding of what dispensationalism was all about. I'm not here in any way, shape, or form to cast any aspersions towards dispensationalists. This is the first eschatological book that I ever received. And I was told that this was the book to buy. Dr. Boyd, it's Things to Come by Dwight uh, Pentecost. J. Dwight Pentecost. And the foreword was by John Woolward. John John F. Woolward. So for at least 25 years of my life, all I knew was dispensationalism. I didn't know there was anything else. That's all I knew. Do you remember that, Jason? I mean, I didn't know that there was a multitude of perspectives out there. That's all I knew. And I thank God for the dispensationalists that had such an impact in my life. So I have a spectrum on the chart for you. And over here on this right side is classic traditional dispensationalism. And on the left side... Covenant theology. Both of them. And what happens is everyone else plots themselves somewhere along this spectrum depending on what you agree and don't agree with concerning this theology. And this impacts how you interpret scriptures. Again, someone says, why are we talking about this on a Sunday night in church? This morning in our Sunday school class, we had an issue concerning the resurrection in Matthew 25. Wasn't that 27? Thanks, Jim. And we had two different study notes read. Jim read a note from his study Bible, and then Justin uh, Goad read a note from his study Bible. 
And they totally did what in class? Everyone that was in class, what'd they do? They totally disagreed. They were completely in disagreement, these two study notes. The more you learn about this differences will help you figure out why theologians disagree. The greater degree to which you conceptualize the differences, you'll be able to say, oh, he's writing from that perspective. Oh, he's writing, I see why they said that. This is why, they believe this, they believe that. So when you talk about covenant theology, and I didn't even know what covenant theology was until a little while ago, and that's just incredible. We're talking about two covenants, two covenants, and those covenants are, does anyone remember from last week? Works and grace. And then they'll talk about five dispensations. I want to show that to you tonight. And then the classic dispensationalists will talk to us about how many dispensations? Seven. And then what happens is the more progressive you are in dispensationalism, you know what you do? You drop dispensations. You go from seven to five. You go from seven to five to three. So what happens in this system is the more you're progressive, Mike, and the more I'm, I'm progressive, we find ourselves meeting in the middle. Do you understand what I mean by that? The polar opposites, we're going to have a lot of disagreement. But when you move this way and I move this way, we find ourselves getting a lot like, oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. For example, there's an aspect of uh, dispensationalism and it's not prevalent today, so I don't want to mischaracterize anyone. I'm, I'm sure Dr. Boyd never believed it. But there was a time, Dr. Boyd, where people believed that Yahweh had a people and Christ had a people. And there were uh, two people of God's. The bride of Yahweh. And that's not a hard idea because Israel's called the bride of, of uh, Yahweh a lot in the Old Testament. Israel is. And so Yahweh had his bride and Christ had his bride. And we had two peoples of God and ultimately had two ways of salvation. And then people said, no way. That's unbiblical. How many people of God's is there? One. And so that aspect of traditional classical dispensationalism was rejected. So in other words, you were over here on my line with, I put a number two up there for two peoples of God. And someone says, no way. There's one people of God. So what happens is you move over here like this. All right, so where's our, our, our verse that most clearly shows us the idea of dispensation? It's Ephesians chapter number three, verse number two in the King James. It reads, if you have heard of the dispensation of grace. Now, the ESV translates it stewardship. The CSV translates it administration. The Hebrew, the Greek word behind it is like the word economy. It's the way that God interacts with people. What is a dispensation? Phone reminds me of yesterday at uh, the wedding. We're up front at the wedding. This is like, take this off the recording. Um, I'm standing over here, and there's uh, Evan right there. And it's almost time for the bride to come down, and there's music playing. There's music playing. Where is this music coming from? No. 
everyone's hearing this music. Where is this music coming from, you know? And it doesn't stop. So I reach out to the um, wedding coordinator. Do you hear that music? Well, it's somebody's cell phone going off inside a purse buried. So in the middle, we're digging out purses and finding cell phones. It's one of those memories on the wedding that you won't forget. Sorry, what is a dispensation? Shep asked me, what is a dispensation? Several of you asked, what is a dispensation? Well, the answer depends on who you ask. There's not uniform agreement on what a dispensation is. So I'll show you two definitions. Merriam-Webster says, a general state or ordering things specifically a system revealed commands and promises regulating human affairs. C.I. Schofield, C.I. Schofield has a definition on page number five of the Schofield Reference Bible. It says, a dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. Any of those definitions helpful? What? Yeah, so the general idea is that there are periods of time in which God interacts with people in different ways. Can we agree with that general idea that there are periods of time in which God interacts with people in different ways? Yeah, and you said yes? What do you all think? Let's have a momentary conversation about this. Blake is definitive about yes. I heard some people going back and forth. All right, Adam and Eve in the garden is what, Jason? Yeah, Adam and Eve in the garden is clearly a different relationship. Sure. Anybody else? Blake? Yeah, whenever the vision that Ezekiel has of God leaving the temple. I mean, he was there with them, and then, and then he leaves. After... Sure, but we're talking not like individuals, but more like collective groups, periods of time. So, like, what's the difference between the way God interacts with us today and the way God interacted with Israel in the Old Testament? Let's talk about that for a moment. All right, good. Caleb says, we have the Spirit. What else? They had prophets. We what? They had prophets. They had prophets. What else? They had priests. What? They had priests. They had priests. Right, so did they interact directly with God? No. So they went through a priest to interact with God, which is utterly different from us. Come back next Sunday night to hear about that. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, come back next Sunday night to hear about that. That's good. Okay, so in some sense, it's fair to say we're all dispensationalists. What I mean by that is we understand that God interacts with people over the period of time in different ways. God didn't interact with King David in the same way he interacted with Moses, in the same way he interacted with Abraham, in the same way he interacted with Noah, in the same way he interacted with Adam. All of those are different. We have to be careful that we don't just poo-poo on everything, that we acknowledge its legitimacy. All right, have you heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith? Yes. yes. All right, is it a big deal? All right, who is it a big deal to? All right, number one, Presbyterians. Anybody else? Reformed. Yeah, reform people. It's a very big deal. What is it? What is it? Put it in your own words. What is it? What is the Westminster Confession of Faith? It's a statement of faith. It's a group of divines, that's what they call them, 
that came together and they created an articulation of what they believed to be true. I'm going to show you one little section of that Westminster Confession. The chapter is chapter number seven of God's covenant with man. Paragraph two says the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. Galatians 3.12, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Paragraph three, man by fall, by and by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto them all that ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, and to make them willing and able to believe. Now, in those two paragraphs, is there a lot that you agree with? What you might struggle with, like I did, is the covenant of works and the covenant of what? Grace. Now, why are we struggling with that tonight, church? Because it doesn't say covenant in those sections of Scripture. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't say covenant. But you have to infer it. That's right. You have to infer it. Continue reading. It says in paragraph 5, the covenant was differently administered in the time of the law, in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types of ordinances delivered by the people of the Jews. Drop all the way down to verse, paragraph number 6, and it says... There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various... There's our word right there, church. Why am I bringing that to your attention? Because way before the 1800s, when Nelson Darby first introduced the idea of dispensations, Presbyterians had been using the word dispensations way before that. They've been using the idea of dispensations for a very long time. All right, what does this mean? Let's flesh this out in the last few minutes that we have together. So the idea is that there is a covenant of grace that stretches all the way from Genesis 3.15 to Revelation 22. And then all the different ways that God provided salvation or interacted with people or, or communicated blessings or, or showed the plan of redemption, whatever those were, for example, the Abrahamic covenant or the Mosaic covenant or, or even the Noahic covenant, those were not covenants but dispensations or administrations of the one covenant, which is the covenant of grace. So... If you say, man, I don't see that in Scripture, like, I, I, I don't see that, then you might be very prone to be a what? Dispensationalist. Because you don't see what? The covenant of grace and the covenant of works. Okay, let me stop right now and see if anyone has a question. I have one. Yeah, go, John. Thank you so much. So you're asking about when uh, God clothed Adam and Eve. So I would say that is a foreshadow when I say that is a typology 
of what God is going to do through Christ Jesus, showing it that God had already determined for the foundation of the world to save sinners through Christ Jesus. Any thoughts on how he interacted with them after the fall, as far as their salvation? It seems to me, John, that it would have to be by faith, and I think the reason I would say that is because Hebrews 11 says that Abel saved by faith, and everyone after that's been saved by faith. So they had to believe the promise. Like, do dispensationalists uh, make a focus of the covenants? Dispensationalists talk about the covenants. They're not denying the covenants. You can see in the dispensational charts that they're very similar in, in the names. They're associated with them. Why is there not the same focus? Why is there not the same focus? Because it's how... Okay, great. That's an awesome question. Can you repeat your question? Yeah, I will. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Like, turn around and give your question one more time. So I asked, I said, uh, I forgot the question. Oh, you did. <laughs> uh, you you want to know why dispensation, do dispensationals neglect the covenants? And the answer to that question was no. They don't neglect the covenants. They acknowledge them. All right, go ahead. Yeah, so I said, well, it seems to me like the big focus throughout Okay, good. I'm going to try to answer that question. If anyone disagrees with me, it's a free form to provide clarity. Would you, would you repeat the question? Sure, I will, Dr. Boyd. He wants to know if dispensationalists acknowledge covenants, and they do, then why don't they see Christ as the fulfillment of those covenants? Because that seems to be the direction that all the covenants are going to, which is Christ. So then why don't they acknowledge that Christ is the fulfillment? Is that... Well, why is that not the... You know, forget all these different dispensations. Why is that not the main thing? You know, why is that not the center focus of their... Okay, so Blake wants to know why is Christ not the center focus? Because we'll talk about, you know, the millennial kingdom all day long, but then it's like, hey, we're forgetting, like, you know, here's the main deal. Christ was the main deal. It still is. So again, Dr. Boyd, is why isn't Christ sufficient in the fulfillment? Why, why, why do we have to continue to have conversations about other things if Christ is the fulfillment? And I would say that in part, that's because of the commitment of dispensationalists to the literal interpretation of the text. In other words, the text didn't say you're getting a tractor. The text said you're getting mules. And because the text says you're getting mules... You have to first get mules. You can't, you can't substitute a tractor for mules because the text said mules. I think it's important for... Yeah, go ahead, Jason. I was just going to say the simplified thing. We're talking about mules. We're really talking about the people, the ethnic people of Israel. We are talking about the ethnic people of Israel. That's mules. That the ethnic people of Israel get, get Israel uh, versus the spiritual people of, of Israel, sons of Abraham, which we all are, getting the entire world uh, brand new. The entire world brand new is the fulfillment. So we don't have to go back to, to the... To the um, 
Yes, I think you're right, Jason. But what I wanted to do is I wanted for a moment to provide a backdrop to why I think that dispensationalists became so committed to the literal interpretation of the text. You have to, you, those of you that know church history know that the 1900s, R.A. Torrey and a group of his peers were fighting liberalism. Liberalism, like if, you should Google the, the fundamentals. It, it, it's, the, it's the history of how from Germany, liberals were infiltrating the states and the bodily resurrection was being denied. The virgin birth of Jesus was being denied. The, the literal 24-hour creations were being denied. Like everything that we hold up to be true was being denied, 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 denied. And, and modernism or liberalism was infiltrating the church a hundred years ago. So guys like Nelson Darby come up and they're like committed to the literal interpretation of the text. Well, if I'm not a, a modernist, if I'm like, no, I believe in the virgin birth and I believe in the legitimacy of the resurrection, then I put my arm around who? Darby and his literal dispensationalism. And so now it becomes, who gets to decide, Blake, fulfilled literally or fulfilled spiritually? Fulfilled literally or fulfilled spiritually? And so a lot just said, no, it's got to be physical. It's got to be literal. We can't have this allegorical, metaphorical, spiritual fulfillment. It's got to be literal. The promise was made to Israel. It wasn't made to the church. And the church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. Yes, right. And at the time that was made, I think it's worthy to note that it's not, um, it wasn't figurative speech when the promise was made. It was not um, symbolic speech. It wasn't because... Okay, right. Amanda's adding to the conversation. Amanda Boyd's adding to the conversation and saying that the promise that God made to Abraham at the time was a physical piece of land. And we agree with that. Bonnie. Can you give a few other examples besides just the land promise, the fleshing out? What else are they like, taking literally that would fit within eternal in their mind? No, Bonnie, it is the land. It is the land. Land is the driving force. Right. Yes, the temple, yes, but that's in conjunction with the land. It's the physical ideas here. Steve, you have a question? Yes, uh, with the land and the tractor that you've been yep. explaining to us. You know, I see uh, the land as a typology uh, because at uh, Jacob's death, at his bed, he adopted two sons. He adopted Ephraim and Manasseh. And... With us, the Gentiles are adopted into the family to inherit the earth. All right, I'm just going to go like five, six more minutes at the most. So here's not John Nelson Darby and 1800 to 1882. Darby was saved under the Westminster Confession. He was a priest taught under the Westminster Confession. So he's very familiar with this idea of two covenants, five dispensations, or various dispensations. And Darby is beginning to reject that idea. Darby, on the other hand, this is from Christianity Today, so it's not biased. On the other hand, developed a new premillennial 
ism, which is called dispensationalism, after the division of history into eras or dispensations. Though later dispensationalists quivered over the number and names of these periods, most agreed with Darby that there were at least seven, Paradise, Noah, Abraham, Israel, Gentiles, the Spirit, and Millennial. And there's not uniform agreement, but that's what his system was. Darby saw history as the progressive revelation. And his system sought to explain stages in God's redemptive plan for the universe. There was nothing especially radical about dividing history into periods. What separated Darby's dispensationalism was his novel, and notice this language please, method of biblical interpretation, when consisted of strict literalism and the absolute separation of Israel and the church into two distinct peoples of God and the separation of the rapture from the second coming. Okay? At the rapture, he said, Christ will come for his saints. At the second coming, he will come with his saints. This is great. <clears throat> James H. Brooks is a Presbyterian pastor who invites Darby to preach at his church in Missouri several times. James H. Brooks rejects the Westminster Confection understanding and adopts dispensationalism. Adopts dispensationalism. At the time of this initial adoption, C.A. Schofield is an unsaved man. He's brilliant. He's a lawyer. He's an attorney general. He is really sharp, but completely unsaved. He gets saved under James Hall Brooks' ministry. And he becomes, like Dr. Boyd, one of your disciples. It's incredible. He, he becomes personally mentoring and discipling C.I. Schofield. So Darby, uh, over in Great Britain, crosses the ocean, links up with James Hall Brooks, who's in the States as a Presbyterian. Schofield becomes a member of his congregation and personally gets discipled by him. And he adopts it, whole hog. Schofield got it. And Schofield is the one that gives us this first publication of rightly dividing the word of truth from 2 Timothy 2.15. He tells people that this is the key to understanding scripture. The King James Version says, Study to show thyself proved to God a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word of truth then has right divisions and it must be evident that one cannot be a workman that needed not be ashamed without observing them. So any study of the Word of God which ignores those divisions must be in large measure profitless and confusing. Many Christians freely confess that they find the study of the Bible weary work, more find it so who are ashamed to make the confession. The purpose of this track is to indicate the more important divisions of the Word of Truth. Got it? Fast forward now. Louis Schaefer is discipled by C.I. Schofield. Louis Schaefer is the founder of Dr. Boyd's Dallas Theological Seminary. That's one of Dr. Boyd's classrooms. <laughs> That's rough right there. Okay, I don't think he's in the picture.
All right, so let, let's just pause for a minute and grasp this. Forget about whether you agree or disagree with dispensationalism for just a moment. And I want you to see the importance of discipleship. It's incredible. Darby and Brooks are friends, and they have these conversations late at night about dispensationalism. Brooks takes, James Hall Brooks takes... C.S. Schofield, C.I. Schofield, under his wings, starts discipling him weekly, daily, personally. Schofield is the author of the Schofield Reference Bible, which is the Bible that causes dispensationalism to explode everywhere. Lewis is convinced by C.S. Schofield that we need seminaries that teach dispensationalism. Because up to this point, the only seminaries that are in existence are Westminster Confession seminaries that teach the two-covenant theology idea. There is no Moody at this point. Moody has started after this. There is no place where dispensational is taught. So Lewis Schaefer starts Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, and that becomes the leading proponent of dispensationalism. So at least at a bare minimum tonight, you got a little bit of a background as to how it happened, what it's all about. Do these men in that room love Jesus? Yes. Absolutely. Do they want to see souls saved? Yes. Lives changed? Yes, yes. Are they brothers and sisters in Christ? No, they're no sisters, but you get the idea. Right. All right, does anyone have a closing comment? Because I feel like this is a good stopping point for tonight. Anyone have a closing comment? Thank you for being so faithful. John. I think what's interesting to note, too, is the, the idea of reacting to false things. Darwin had just come out in this century and blown the world up. And that was pushing a lot of the... Um, the literalism. The, the liberal thought and modernism as well to reject the scripture. Right. John's making attention to the historical reality that Darwin is introducing this entire theory right here. The church is reacting to that, the scoping monk, 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 uh, trial, and all those type of things are all contributing factors to why we have dispensationalism and why it takes root in such a prominent way. I have uh, one or two more pictures I want to show you. Fast forward to Hal Lindsey, and he's the one that brings it to every church in America. 15 million copies sold. Fast forward a little bit more, and you've got Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, and they give us an entire series on this thing. People stop reading their Bibles, and they read this, and they buy it all. And you get the impression that there is no alternative other than this, and this is what the Bible teaches. That's why if you PCS it as a soldier, you're going to be hard-pressed not to find a church that committed to the Word of God that isn't dispensational. Unless you go to the Presbyterian. They'll be just as committed to the word of God. But you'll be like, I don't agree with the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. I don't see that. So then you end up in a dispensational church because there is really almost no middle ground. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace and thank you for your goodness. And Lord, I just praise you that we have the ability to come together in such comfort and study your word and talk about super hard things. Pray, Lord, that we as a church would continue to be committed to the word of God.
committed to the Word of God and our understanding of it. In Jesus' name.